Hi there. Welcome to Lake Ridge Community Church Podcast. Uh, this is a place where we get to share uh, some of our messages from Sunday mornings. Uh, we're glad that you're here to listen, but we'd also love to have you in person. So if you'd like to pop in some Sunday, we meet at 1030 at Our Lady of Wisdom School here in Chestermere. And uh, you can obviously check us out as well at uh, www.lakeridgecommunity.com. Thanks for listening. How's it going, everybody? Good? I've never spoken to a group of people that have masks on. It's really hard to read your faces, and I'm somebody who reads faces. So hopefully smiles as we go throughout here. Um, <laughs> yeah, like Eric said, um, I'm excited. We're going to have to talk about peace today. Sound good? We've been talking about peace a bunch. So I'm hoping I can teach you something today. That's my hope. Um, for those of you guys who don't know me, uh, yeah, my name is Colin Doss. I am uh, the assistant director out of Camp Chestermere. I'm also a substitute teacher for Rocky Peak Schools. Um, I have a uh, beautiful wife. Her name is Shay. You may have met her. Um, and our two little girls, Georgia and Ellie, a uh, five-year-old and a two-year-old, are a lot different, but they're amazing. I love them so much. They make my world just so much greater. Um, yeah, and they're amazing. I actually... It's funny that I'm talking about peace today, because anybody who's ever had young kids knows peace, not necessarily always a thing, right? Like peace is not necessarily rampant throughout your household every single day. We have a long hallway in our house. Our kids run up and down that hallway about 5,000 times. We have downstairs neighbors. I feel terrible for them. But peace is not always a thing with siblings. Who had a sibling growing up? Raise your hand if you had a sibling growing up. Yeah, so you know. Uh, who has young kids? Young kids? Yeah. So most of us kind of comprehend what, an, what a, uh, a chaotic situation might look like with two little kids. Yeah? Fair? Fair? My kids, oh my gosh. Um, they, they get along for the most part for like throughout, throughout the day. Throughout, everything's pretty, pretty fine. But it's, there's times where literally they will start arguing and fighting but they don't even mean to. Has anybody ever seen this? Kids do this. This is a thing. They start fighting, but they're not mad at each other. What? That's so messed up. They'll literally look at each other. They're smiling at each other, and they're sticking out their tongues like, mm. and I'm like, what's the matter with you? <laughs> I don't know, that's so, I just, I look at that, and I'm like, are you, do you actually love each other? But they stick out their tongues at each other. They just, mm, and they look like they're mad at each other. And has everybody, any, anybody ever seen like the moment where they actually start getting mad at each other? Like my kids will start turning and then start getting mad at each other even though they weren't in the first place. Like they'll look at each other and just, mm, and then they're like, ah, that's so funny. They're smiling and they're like, mm, and then one of them just kind of like looks a little bit longer, a little bit more angrier. And then it takes a swipe. I'm like, how did this, <laughs> how did this happen? Um, that is a life with a five-year-old and a two-year-old. That just, I guess that just happens now. That's my life. It's chaos and disorder and destruction. So it's a good thing that we're talking about peace today. <laughs> so I, I, I think we need a message on that. Um, so, pop quiz, pop quiz. Peace in the Bible, uh, the, the, the Hebrew word for it is? Shalom. Say it a little loud. Come on, Colin. Shalom, shalom. And shalom means to be complete, to be made whole, 
to have oneness and to have everything set right. Peace in the Bible is rampant throughout every single piece of scripture. It is all over the place. Everything that they hope for, everything that they wish for, is through hoping that somebody would gain peace. They greeted each other with shalom. They greeted each other, hoping that they would, the other person would have peace and that they would have peace themselves. I started out the sermon and I thought of this question, how different our lives would look if we wished shalom for everyone. How different would your life look if you wished shalom, peace, completeness, wholeness for everyone? So I think since this is a, this is a main core concept that goes all throughout scriptures and the authors are, are really trying to hone in on this, I think we need to start at a place. Start at the beginning. So, if you have your Bibles, open them up. If you have your phones, open them up. I want you to read along with me if you, if you do have them. Um, Genesis 1. We're going to get started right into the beginning. The reason why we're starting in Genesis 1, honestly, is because there are a ton of themes in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that run all the way throughout the Bible. So when you're reading the other stories, what we need to do is we need to look back at Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and understand, find the themes in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Cool? Awesome. So, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Do you get it? Of course you don't. None of us should get what, who read that the first time they read it and they were like, what? Hovering over the surface of the... Be honest, raise your hand if you're like, I don't understand this. I'm hoping that most people will raise their hands. It's fair. We're learning. We're growing. The first time I ever read this scripture, I was like, I, hovering over the surface of the waters? What? I just opened this thing and you're already like throwing me into this world of imagination where this deity is hovering over the surface of these waters? But if you're an ancient... Israelite, if you're an ancient Egyptian, if you're an ancient Mesopotamian, if you're in that area, you go, oh, oh, interesting. See, a lot of the origin stories that come from that time period had some sort of story about water. It was usually two beings fighting against each other and creating something out of that, and it's usually mankind, that the, the earth would somehow be formed by the gods that were out there. And they would create this chaotic situation between the waters. The ancient Egyptians, it was, it was salt water and fresh water. Those are my notes, I can't remember. But there were situations where these waters were colliding. There was something significant about water. So when you put yourself as an ancient Israelite, you go, oh, hovering over the waters. Interesting. John Walton calls it chaos water. That there's a situation at the beginning of time where there is a mess, chaotic waters. There's unrest. There's, there's a struggle. And God is hovering over these chaotic waters. And the first, this is our first sign of peace. First time I read that, I thought, hmm, 
I wonder if I can truly understand the concept of peace without first understanding that there are chaotic waters. How many of us look at our story today and can truly, truly identify and appreciate the peace that we are in without looking back and seeing the chaos and seeing the destruction? From the very first line in the Bible, God is getting ready to set in peace. So we move forward. As we go through Genesis 1, what happens? What happens? God, he creates. And what does he call it? What does he call it? Good. He creates, he creates the, the world. He creates matter. He creates, he creates people. He, the, he's, the story is trying to, trying to tell us a story. Tell us a story, sorry, tell the ancient Israelites a story that God is creating things and sees that they are good. This is a very different story than anybody else is hearing. Everybody else at that time, they're not hearing this story. They're not hearing that they're good. They're not hearing that their lives have worth. So when they hear this story come from the Bible, they're blown away. A God can create us and make something good out of those chaotic waters? See, God actually calls us what? Not good, but what does he call? Top three. Very good. Scroll down a little bit and you'll see it in your phones or in your Bibles. God calls you very good. There's something different about us as creation. There's something special about us as creation. And the, the biblical authors are harking to it right now. They're calling to it and saying, look, look, look. You are very good. You are very good. God created you for a purpose, for something special and unique, and you need to know that. You are not a mistake. You're not some broken pattern that out of chaos was developed. You are something good, made from peace and made from a loving God. So, as we go through the story, what happens is uh, there's two characters that come out. Two characters are Adam and Eve. There we go. I'm used to doing this in a camp setting, or even like at a, uh, other churches where we'll get like some like feedback. So I love the fact when you guys call out. Thank you, I appreciate it. So. I'll give you easy ones. I'll keep giving you softballs. <laughs> so, Adam and Eve. Yes, Adam and Eve. Humanity and life. Those names mean humanity and life. They're named that on purpose. As you go through the story, what happens is God creates this setting of, of peace and tranquility, of wholeness and completeness, and he calls it the garden. That Eden is this place where God has created peace, oneness with him. And what we are called to do is we're actually meant to be authority. We are meant to be co-rulers with God in our fullness and completion. That's what we're actually called to do. Do you know that? That you're meant to be a co-ruler with God? That you and your potential, you're actually meant to be a peace-filled, co-ruler, an authority ruling over the land. That's your call. So, 
in the garden, God paints this picture of shalom, of peace. And like all good things, what happens? It comes to an end. So in the story, Genesis 3, what happens is we move forward and uh, Adam and Eve, they have this opposing figure that shows up and starts questioning everything they have ever known. And challenges them to think differently. And what happens is humanity, they decide to say, yeah, I'm going to choose right and wrong for myself. The tree of knowledge is meant to try and paint a picture that humanity took from the fruit and said, I'm going to seize autonomy or choose right and wrong for myself and make decisions on my own without God. And then there's the story of the fall. But how many times do we experience that every single day? Where we have a choice to either choose God, to follow in his wisdom and his path and his love and his grace, or choose our own way. Maybe be a little bit more selfish. Maybe a little little bit more focused on us. So at the fall, in this story, also it doesn't matter whether or not Eve ate it first or Adam ate it first. I just got to say that right now because we're not having that conversation. (laughs) Doesn't matter. (laughs) Um, But uh, in the story, these two characters, they partake in trying to figure out what is, how to choose right and wrong for themselves. And then there's this separation from God. They're taken out of the garden. But here's what I love about this story. And I actually just found this out a couple weeks ago, and it blew my mind. Did you guys know that God does not curse Adam and Eve? I'm going to say that again. So when Adam and Eve partake of the fruit, and they choose right and wrong for themselves, committing what most would think would be the worst thing you could do in this place of peace. If you fast forward to Genesis 3, God doesn't curse Adam and Eve. He curses the ground, and he curses the serpent. Here, I'll read it for you. Genesis 3.14. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust in all, all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. There's a ton of symbolism there we're not going to get into today. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit and from the tree, uh, about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you eat fruit from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From the dust you are, and dust you will return. At no point does God turn to Adam and Eve and say, you're cursed, you're bad, you're sinful, you don't deserve love, you don't deserve peace. From the moment 
that the worst things could possibly happen. From that moment on, God continued to give peace as an opportunity. He wanted to redeem his people. He wanted to bring his people home to him. So this is what, this is the story that we play with every day. This is the story that we are in every single day. Do we choose to be in a place where we decide right and wrong for ourselves? Or do we choose to follow God? Do we choose peace? Or do we choose chaos? Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, what happens? They're consistently brought to this point where they have to make a decision whether or not they want to follow God or follow their own ways. See, this is a key theme that we need to stick with. That God, that God wants to restore peace in your life. God wants to restore peace in your life. He wants you to be in the garden with him. He wants you to experience shalom. And that as mankind, our desire, the thing that's inside of us that we can't quite put words to, is to hope for peace is to get to the garden, is to experience that oneness with God. And honestly, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, it happens everywhere, all over the place. These ancient Israelites were trying to find a way to find shalom. They greeted one another with it. They literally, they made commandments, hundreds of commandments, to try and find a way to reconnect with the Father and come back to the garden. A lot of us have the same desire. I want to try and connect with God, get close with God. How do I do it? It's a struggle. And the Bible is filled with these redemption stories, opportunities for us to choose right and wrong for ourselves or to follow God. So, I want to quickly show a video. And I know people on Facebook, I think Eric has posted in the comments, maybe. Or it's not running, I don't know. We'll see. I saw a couple red lights. <laughs> but uh, we're going to watch a quick video, and I want to talk about this, and we're going to end it off right there. The story of the Bible begins with God creating a beautiful world and then sharing it with all of his creatures. And he appoints Adam and Eve to rule it on his behalf. And God gives them access to his wisdom and life, but then tells them that there's one tree they can't eat from because it will lead to death. So they have a choice about how to rule with God. This kind of feels like a test. Well, that's because it is a test. But isn't that kind of cruel for God to test them? Well, not all tests are bad. Let's say there's a king who chooses you to fulfill a royal task because he wants to know if you are trustworthy. Well, I guess that's a test, but really it's an opportunity to do something important and noble. Right, but then let's say there's a rebel who hates the king and you, and he tries to convince you that you would be better off not doing what the king asks. Well, the rebel is setting a trap. Right, so a test could be an opportunity or a trap. 
And the difference is whether the one testing you has your best interests in mind. I see. And both types of tests appear in the beginning of the Bible. God tells them to eat of the tree of life and not the forbidden tree. Yeah, this is God's test of loyalty. God wants to rule the world with humans as his partners, which means they will need to trust his wisdom over their own. But then a rebel comes and tests them to eat of that other tree. Right, the rebel seizes this opportunity and twists it so he can lead the humans into exile and ultimately death. He turns the test into a trap. But after the humans fail, God promises that one day, a human will come who will pass the test and defeat the snake. And as the story moves on, God gives a couple named Abraham and Sarah an opportunity to trust him by leaving their family behind, to go to a new land where God will use them to restore his blessing to all people. So this is a test. And at first, things go well. But Abraham quickly fails. He lies to protect himself, and then he and Sarah scheme to get a son their own way by abusing one of their servants. Definitely not passing the test. But God doesn't give up on Abraham. He gives him one final opportunity, a test to prove his loyalty. God asks Abraham to go up onto a hill and offer his son as a sacrifice. I can't imagine a more intense test. And Abraham does it. But in the last moment, God stops him and provides a substitute animal in the place of his son. God then says he will fulfill his promise through Abraham's family because he passed this test. So Abraham passed this test, but he hasn't proven to be a fully trustworthy partner. We're still waiting for someone who can pass the ultimate test. Yeah, and as the family of Abraham grows and becomes a nation, God continues to test them. Like when the Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They have lots of opportunities to trust in God, to provide water or daily bread. But they instead blame God and even say that he trapped them in the desert to kill them. And so the rest of Israel's story in the Hebrew scriptures is pretty much the same. The Israelites don't trust in God and his promise. They're not loyal. And eventually the whole nation fails. So humans have an amazing opportunity to partner with God, but no one is really qualified. And so all of this brings us forward to Jesus. There's a story where Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. Ah, yes, the wilderness. And there he meets a sinister creature who tries to trap him. But Jesus trusts in God's wisdom. And he passes the test. Then later, there's a story about Jesus going to pray with some friends, and God commissions him to go up to Jerusalem and to give up his life. And so he goes. And on the night of his arrest, Jesus took his friends and went to a garden. And he told them to pray, because tonight, he said, is the great test. And he prayed to God, please let this test pass from me, but not my desire, rather, may your desire be done. In this garden, Jesus shows us what passing the test looks like. He trusted in God's wisdom. He loved others more than himself, and he confronted evil with good. Even though it cost him his life. Right. Jesus offered his own life as a sacrifice to cover for all of the failed tests of his people Israel and of all humanity. Jesus passed the ultimate test on behalf of us all. This is amazing, but 
that doesn't mean everything is gonna be great in our lives. I mean, let's be honest, we're gonna face our own tests every day. Right, Jesus said every generation of his followers would have their own tests that will force them to trust God in radical new ways. And these tests can be difficult and often painful. But remember, a test from a good God is an opportunity. This is why James, a leader in the early Jesus movement, said that we should be grateful when we face tests and trials because they offer us a gift. It's an opportunity to surrender to God's wisdom and to become more like Jesus, the one who loved us and who passed the test on our behalf. This is probably, uh, this is probably one of my favorite videos. Uh, you'll see um, what we could analyze to see God out of it. One of the, just as a side note, one of the things that I love about this video the, the, the doorway that shows and depicts God's choice versus the rebel's choice or our own selfish desire's choice, that one looks harder. There's fire. There's, it's, it's, not, it's not easy. The other one is, is painted with pictures of like, it's a, it looks like a forest, but it looks like lush and like, oh, it looks so inviting. I think a lot of times we walk into the same situation. The easier decision the easier decision often will be the one that we well, shouldn't make. The one that looks more enticing and inviting sometimes won't be the one that produces the best fruit. Sorry, I could analyze this ton. I, I love that video. Holy. Um, my favorite part of that video when he says a test from a good God is an opportunity. Every one of us comes to the table with our own baggage. Every single one of us has an understanding of who God is. And I know that there's people in this room who struggle with that. Why would God test me in this way? Is God actually a good God that loves me? How do I know that this God is trustworthy? I know there's people in this room that struggle with this. But can I tell you that the good news is that you have a loving father who wants to continue to walk with you in the garden and that he did the ultimate sacrifice by sending his son so that we could be in peace with him. That we could be in shalom with him. So, this conversation of testing, of commandments, of, of, uh, of peace comes to a head in the New Testament. The Prince of Peace is sent down. The Prince of Peace is sent down. And he comes, and he has this ultimate moment where the Sadducees and the Pharisees are having this little, this little huddle, right? They kind of huddle together, and they're like, all right, guys, uh, we're going to get them on this one. <laughs> they're so excited. They kind of huddle around. Their entire existence has been centered around how do we find peace? How do we find oneness with God? How do we connect with him? How do we do it? We have over 600 laws that try and get us there. So now, if he says he's the son of God, we're going to try and figure out what's the most important. So they turn to him and say, okay, what's the thing that we can do to inherit peace? And Jesus replies, love God with everything that you have 
and love others. Everything hangs on that. Love God. Love others. Everything hangs on that. Every decision that you make, every time you think that you're moving towards peace or you're not moving towards peace, you have to try and filter through, am I loving God? Am I loving others? I think sometimes when we see these videos, these test videos, I know that I even struggle with, well, how do I know when I'm getting tested? How do I know that, like, this situation's coming up? How do, how do I know that what's going to be God's way and what's going to be this, this accuser's way? What's going to be my own selfish desires and what is going to be God's way? Jesus gives them a simple answer, the Shema, the thing that they were repeating morning and night every single day. Love God with everything that you have, every part of your being, and love others. Oftentimes when I tell people, or what I used to say a lot when, it, when they ask me, well, how do I love God? I don't even know what that means. Love God. Okay, well, I love him. Great, I figured it out. Where to go? I used to tell them, oh, you know, read your Bible, pray, worship, do those things. And that's good. It's, it's not a bad answer. But I don't think it's really complete. Those are things that you can do. But what I encourage you to do, if you're struggling with loving God, can I encourage you just to spend time with him, whatever that looks like, and do not feel guilt about the way that you are spending time. God truly wants you to walk in the garden with him. You should not feel guilty when you're in the garden. When you're finding peace. Learn his ways, find his character, and understand who the God you follow truly is. It takes time. It takes time. And know that we don't have all the answers. To love others is to also love God. When you follow through with loving others and loving the people around you, you are showing God, hey, I care for the humanity you created that you called very good. I see value in them. So, what I love about this answer when Jesus says this, it's like the simplest thing you could say. We'll love others. <laughs> what? Has anybody like been in any sort of relationship, friendship, son, daughter, What? Come on, love others? That's not, not as easy as you would say, just love others. It's way more nuanced than that. Jesus knows that there's a complexity to that. But sometimes we get burnt by relationships. Sometimes there's relationships where you feel like you've done nothing but love that person and they haven't loved you back. Sometimes there's relationships where you feel like you've given and given and given. And you're getting nothing from that. Sometimes there's relationships where you feel like there's trust that's been in there and somebody breaks that trust. Sometimes there's relationships that you have that are really thriving and are really good. But you feel like something's off. The answer of loving people is not just as simple as, well, I'll just go give them a hug and everything will be fine. The answer of loving people is to take time 
to spend time in finding the ways that might be the most appropriate to love them. Sometimes, loving people doesn't look like hanging out with them 24-7. Sometimes loving somebody might mean a little bit of separation between you and them. If there's an abusive situation, I can tell you right now that loving that person might not mean being around them all the time. But being truthful and honest with who you are and what you hope for them will bring peace and shalom to them. Friends, the truth of the gospel is this. God sees the potential in you. God sees the potential in you. And to answer his text, find peace and to love others so deeply that you get a glimpse of the garden. That is the hope. That is how we find peace. Love God, love others. And so if I can encourage you this week, as you go throughout your day, whether it's your family, the people that you really connect with, that you really, really love, the people that are your best friends, your spouse, whether it's the, pe- the person on the side of the road that you've never met before, can I encourage you that God has given you an opportunity not only to love him, and to experience the garden with him, but to also love others so much and value others so much that you would want for them to experience the garden as well, to experience peace and to experience shalom. I'm going to pray for us. Um, Yeah, and I'm going to invite up Evan. Uh, Father, thank you so much uh, for who you are, God, that you consistently just reveal things to us day in and day out. Father, I pray for opportunities, for tests, God, we, <laughs> a test from a good God is an opportunity. So, Father, we pray that you will give us those tests. And in response, that we will love you with everything that we have, and we will see the value in others. God, that we will see how good your creation is. Father, we pray, we thank you, God, for your son, for the gift of shalom that is so quickly given to us. And all we have to do is trust in you, and we will find peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Would you stand and receive the benediction this morning? So grateful for that. I was... That was a real gift. Thank you. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you his peace as you go from this place. Sharing and experiencing the shalom of God. Amen. Have a great week and thanks for coming.